Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series, Walking Through the Book Through New Eyes by James Jordan. And here, the guys will be discussing chapter 15, The World of the Tabernacle. We do want to keep you aware of our upcoming intensive course with Peter Lighthart in the month of March. That course will be on Paul and Pauline Theology and will run from March 13th through March 17th. For more information about this class and to register, there is a link in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lighthart, Jeffrey Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. James Bijan, who is normally with us, is out today. Uh, he's uh, uh, suffering from a severe headache, uh, so uh, we're disappointed he's not with us. Praying for him and hope he's better and uh, back with us soon. Brian Motes is, as usual, controlling things in the background, turning all the dials, flipping all the switches, making sure everything gets recorded and edited and smoothed out for you. Uh, We are in the middle of a series of studies in uh, Jim Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, subtitled Developing a Biblical View of the World. And we've been going through this book for the last couple of months. Uh, The book starts out with a description of the importance of symbolism in a biblical world picture. Jim lays out uh, some of the furniture of the world, how different objects in the world and created things specifically symbolize God, how they there's mutual symbolism among created things. So trees represent people, people represent trees, and you have this, you have this network of this um, this forest of symbols that makes up the created world. And we're in the portion of the book that where he's going through different covenantal orders, uh, different worlds, the world of the patriarchs. We've looked at. We're going to look at uh, today the world of the tabernacle, which is uh, what ha- the world that's established the covenantal order that's established in the aftermath of the Exodus. Uh, Next week, we'll look at the world of the temple. Uh, Jim has a chapter on the world of the restoration, the era of Israel's history after the exile, and then he moves it into the new covenant at the end of the book. So today, the world of the tabernacle, which is basically the mosaic order, he's talking about the symbolic polity, which is the tabernacle itself and what the tabernacle symbolizes, and then the social polity, which is the organization of Israel as a people during this era. And I just want to highlight a couple of things that Jim does when he's talking about the Torah in this chapter, because I think it's uh, I think it's really helpful, the, the framework that he lays out. He, he's written things on specific areas of the law. He wrote Law of the Covenants prior to Through New Eyes. He's written uh, many essays on different aspects of the law. So he's, uh, he's not doing that kind of detailed work in Through New Eyes, but he is laying out a, a basic framework which I think is a really helpful framework for thinking about how we make use of the law. There's a, a large chunk of the Bible, of course, that is Torah, meaning it's it's specifically instruction, what we think of as the law of Moses, sections of Exodus, um, portions of uh, Leviticus, uh, the whole of Deuteronomy. Those different books uh, are are law in a in a narrow sense. So it's a, a large chunk of the Old Testament, and uh, Jim is laying out a framework for understanding how that how we're to grapple with it. And basically, he, he, he sets up a series of four filters. Uh, we have to think about what it meant, what does this law mean, and how did it work within the Old Covenant order. 
we can't assume that we know exactly the rationale for a particular law. We have to study how the law is put together. We have to study the law as a whole in order to see how it's put together and what how it works and why it works the way it does in ancient Israel. Then there's a typological dimension. We want to think about how this law is somehow typifying and foreshadowing Jesus Christ. And then as far as practical application, Jim emphasizes the need for the church being the first zone of application. So if we're looking at a passage in in Exodus in the Book of the Covenant, for example, we want to think we want to eventually think about how that might apply to modern societies. But first of all, we want to think about how it applies to the holy community of the church, because it was given to the holy community of Israel. And so the first application is going to be in the new covenant holy community, the community of saints. So that I think that uh, that stage is really, really crucial. And then the last stage is to see how it applies out in the wider world. I think what Jim ends up with is a, is a form of theonomy that is uh, looking at the Old Testament law is still authoritative for Christians and for nations in the New Covenant. But I think by setting up these filters, he's, it's a much more refined, much more nuanced form of theonomy. It's more, more attentive to the details of the Old Testament law and how the Old Testament law actually worked. Uh, and then it's also taking account more more fundamentally of the covenantal shift from the old to the new, which is radical. And so we can't just straightforwardly say all of the Old Testament law applies as it did in the old covenant. We have to we have to think through how it applies. A couple of things that I would would want to add to that framework. When he talks about the law typifying Jesus, I want to plug in there not just how it's a, a type of Jesus, but I'll plug in there Jesus' own example of law keeping. And Jesus' teaching on the law, because I think that's crucial for understanding how the the Torah applies in the in the in the new covenant. Uh, obviously, Jesus, the sinless God man, never sinned. He never broke Torah. He was accused of breaking Torah constantly, but he never did actually break any commandments of God. He didn't disobey his father. And so Jesus' conduct is a is a model of proper Torah keeping. And I think maybe the most uh, obvious place where this is true is in his Sabbath activities. He clearly violates Pharisaical Sabbath rules, but he doesn't violate the Sabbath law itself. And so if we want to think through how the Sabbath applies in the new covenant, we want to look not only at the Old Testament laws and how they worked and how Jesus brings in Sabbath. Uh, he brings in rest. He removes the heavy yoke of the law. But we also want to look at how Jesus keeps Sabbath, because that's going to be a model of how we're to keep Sabbath in the New Covenant. We want to follow his example. And obviously, his example is often an example of giving rest, giving relief. Uh, it's not uh, The focus is not so much on uh, taking rest or ceasing from labor, but rather on uh, relieving uh, the burdens of others. That's, that's how Sabbath keeping works in Jesus' example. And the same thing with Jesus' teaching, because Jesus teaches on the law, most obviously in the Sermon on the Mount, but elsewhere too. And what he highlights in the law and the way he interprets the law, again, is uh, gives us insight into how the law continues to be operative. So when in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't take Jesus to be replacing the law with his own commandments. I rather see him teaching his disciples how they're to keep the law in a way that manifests a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And by keeping Jesus' teaching, we're actually keeping Torah as it was intended to be kept. And by obeying Jesus' commandments, we're also following his example. Keeping Jesus' commandments is a way of imitating Christ. So keeping Torah and imitating Christ and keeping the commandments of Jesus kind of all come together 
But I think you need that additional element of of looking at the teaching of Jesus on the law and the example of Jesus law keeping. Yeah, Peter, your comments on the law just reminded me of how insightful this chapter is. Now we're going to say that about every chapter in this book, but reading through the chapter again this last week, uh, I was struck by how many misconceptions there are about the law in modern Christianity and even in our own circles. And on page 199, at least in the original edition, I'm not sure what edition is still out there right now. Jim talks about the three most common errors uh, of the law that people have, that it was harsh, that it was impossible to obey, that it's irrelevant to us today. And those are worth uh, reading and, and reflecting on, that it was overly harsh. You got to remember, of course, too, the stage of humanity. Israel was like children, we're told in Galatians 4.1. So there is a bit of, of uh, well, it's, a li- it's different than uh, the law as it's developed later on, but it's not harsh. These were given to the Israelites who came out of Israel slaves, and they needed to be formed up. They needed to be structured, and these laws gave them a way to structure their polity, their social life, and it's exactly what they needed. But the other, the other misconception here that he talks about is that um, that it was so tough that it was the law is given is so tough that no one can keep it. And I've heard this from many fellow pastors. Actually, they'll ask me what I'm preaching on. Recently, I was preaching on the Ten Commandments, a Decalogue. I've done that before, but at one time I was asked by a actually by a seminary professor, what I was preaching. And I said, I'll preach on the Decalogue. He says, oh, well, I would never do that with a congregation. I'm like, what do you mean you would never do that? He said, well, it would make people proud and make people think that they could actually keep the law. I'm like, what? Okay. Um, so explain that to me. Well, he said, the law is given so that we, we might know how sinful we are and that we can never keep it. And we can just go in prayer and trust God to give us the righteousness that we need because we can never have it. Now, of course, I understand that that's typical use of the law, and I, I, it's true. Of course, we all need the righteousness of Christ. We all need to be forgiven. That's certainly true, but that doesn't mean that you're not expected to try to keep the law and that the law can be kept on some level, not perfectly, but kept. I mean, I don't I don't give my children, for example, a law that they need to have their room clean. Okay, the, your room needs to be clean before dinner every day. I don't give them that law so that I can go in there and see that the room is a total disaster and they didn't clean it, and they can just say to me, "Oh, Dad, I am totally unable to do this. I am, uh, I, 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 <laughs> and so I need you to do it for me." I say, no, okay, are you asking forgiveness for not doing it? I'll grant that to you, but now get to work. You can do this. And I find it that um, this idea that we're constantly just to think of ourselves as, you know, unfit, unworthy sinners that can't do anything. That's the, the, uh, the inability of uh, us to attain God's love or to draw God's love down, that's that's true. But that doesn't mean we're not able to keep the commandments in a real sense and that God doesn't expect us to, and it's not for our good. 
so this just looking at the law, at the Torah, at the Mosaic law, and recognizing that this was a, his gift to his people, sure, they weren't always going to keep it. That's why as part of the law, we have the whole tabernacle and sacrificial system. That's how you receive forgiveness. Uh, there's other things going on there, obviously, but uh, you you can be forgiven. That's why Luke can call Zechariah and Elizabeth blameless and righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. It's because when they sin, they sought forgiveness in the me- by the means which God had provided them. So, I mean, that's just one insight that comes from this chapter. There's a lot more as we're going to see, but I think pastors would do well to reflect on this passage as a way of understanding the Mosaic Covenant in a fruitful way that would help people. And Peter, you're you're mentioning the other things that Jordan talked about in terms of being fulfilled in Christ and in the church. That's all extremely important. I just wanted to highlight that one point that I think is necessary for today. One of the things I found helpful here is Glenn Stassen's treatment of the Sermon on the Mount, which is often employed to make that sort of argument that you mentioned, Jeff. And his argument is, as you look through, it doesn't actually fit the sort of case that people want to make from it. So what we have is not, here is the law, you cannot, Jesus radicalizes it, and then it becomes clear that you cannot keep it. Rather, you have the law, the vicious cycle, the thing that leads to problems and accentuates the issue, and Jesus' response, which is practical action. And so in the case of um, murder, the vicious cycle is the fact that within the heart you have anger, you have hostility towards brothers, etc. And from that can proceed the, the sin of murder and violence. And we see that in the story of Genesis chapter 4, the way that the Lord speaks to Cain and asks him why his face has fallen and tries to arrest that sin, as it were, in the bud. And so it's dealt with where it needs to be dealt with. And what Jesus provides to that is not, oh, you can't keep the law. It's just beyond you. The law is far too radical in its demands. We need to turn inwards and recognize that if we have this radical understanding of our sin arising within the heart, we clearly are not righteous in any way at all. And there's no way of keeping this law. Rather, it's a matter of recognizing the root of that in the heart. How do you arrest that vicious cycle? Well, you do it by the positive action of reconciling with your brother, which is a practical, concrete action that Christ is calling people to, which is not beyond our ability. It's not impossible to leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled with your brother. And so when we actually read the Sermon on the Mount carefully, it just doesn't fit the narrative that people have about the law and which they try and argue into the text rather than from the text. Yeah, I found Stassen's work on the Sermon on the Mount really helpful too. And I, I don't know if this is something that he says, but the, the way that I've connected it up with the, the earlier part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And I think that's exactly what he's talking about is the kind of righteousness he demands of his disciples. It's a righteousness that doesn't just avoid evil, but one that rather has a kind of redemptive effect. So if you keep the commandments that he's giving, uh, then you're pursuing reconciliation and peace. When he talks about the lex talionis, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth principle, 
the Lex Talionis continues to operate in a sense, you know, the example that he gives of the slapping, there are two slaps, but the person who received the first slaps received first slap receives the second one also. So there's a, a doubling and a, a bearing of the insult and a bearing of the wrong that Jesus, uh, that's, that's the way he seems to be applying the, the Lex Talionis. And that's a redemptive move instead of entering into a situation where you have this potential for an, an ongoing kind of feud. Uh, one slap follows another, and you just have an endless, an endless string of slaps. It arrests it by the person following Jesus and bearing the second slap himself. So that's redemptive righteousness because it's actually, uh, it's actually advancing the kingdom. It's advancing the reconciliation and peace and love and justice of the kingdom um, as they follow Jesus' commandments. Also, I, I think Jeff's point about the the fact that you have mechanisms for. Uh, reconciliation that are built into the law. I think that's I think that's crucial. That's a point that E.P. Sanders makes when he talks about the law. You know, E.P. Sanders, the the granddaddy of the new perspective on Paul. Uh, but it's true that uh, obviously people were not expected to keep all the moral commandments perfectly because there were ways of um, of cleansing and purification for breaking the commandments. So that's but that's built into the system. The other thing I, I want to highlight with uh, with Jim. And kind of in that regard, is the emphasis he places on the continuing significance of the ceremonial law. And this, I think, is it doesn't do that so much here in Through No Eyes, but over the years, as we uh, explored Leviticus together and uh, as we explored the temple system together at Biblical Horizons conferences, it became clear and clear that the what, what's called the ceremonial law continues to gain, give us wisdom in the new covenant just as much as the moral and the civil law. So uh, typically, if you divide up the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial, the ceremonial is the part that's obviously fulfilled in Christ, and it becomes basically irrelevant as a as a guide. It's there just to kind of typify Christ and to enrich our understanding of the atonement. That's true. That's that's one. That's a central reason why it's there, but it it's also there because it's guiding and and shaping and informing the way we worship. So uh, again, there's a uh, if you if you take the ceremonial law and you run it through this Christological typological kind of framework, then the ceremonial law also continues to have bearing on the new covenant. Yeah, and the uh, New Testament authors do not simply apply the ritual laws, the sacrificial laws, to Jesus. They also apply it to the church. So you have this totus Christus idea: is that Jesus and his church fulfill these laws. So we offer ourselves as living sacrifices and so on. There's all sorts of references to the church as the temple, the church as the house of God. And that's often missed. It's it's easy to, to tie these into Jesus, the sacrificial ritual into Jesus. Jesus is the one who dies. Jesus is the one who's transformed and ascends into the presence of God, into the into the cloudy presence of God as every sacrificial animal does, but we also do that. <laughs> in Christ, we do that, and that that needs to be highlighted. The other thing I would say about the uh, ceremonial laws is something that I remember Jim said, and I heard even before I read this, I think, him say that was just an aha moment for me. And Americans, American evangelicals, probably just Western Christians think that the sacrificial system was so complicated, so so detailed, and, and it was just such a burden to them 
<laughs> and he said he I remember him talking about uh, at, the, at the time when there weren't computers in in auto repair shops, there were these big old books. Uh, one of them was called Chilton. I mean, it's huge books. And you'd go in there and you ask for a part for your car. You know, I need a lamp for my the, the right uh, headlamp in my car, something like that. And and they would look through these books and, and be flipping through and know exactly where to find it. And then go in the back and this this uh, labyrinth of uh, of shelving and find it and come out and give it to you. And he said, you know, they're used to doing that. They know those books. They know where to find things. Um, and it was a lot like that with the priests. Um, so just because we're not used to it doesn't mean they didn't learn how to live in it uh, comfortably and uh, productively. And that that applies to the sacrificial rituals. It also applies, as he says, also to the... Uh, the laws of uncleanness. Uh, we we might not like the fact that they weren't allowed to eat shellfish because we eat it all eat it all the time. Uh, actually, Jim never did, but he didn't do it. He did not do that because of these laws. He just did it because he didn't like it. But anyway, um, and so they wouldn't eat pork, and we think, oh my gosh, they couldn't have bacon. What's the deal with that? Um, but again, if the, if everybody is eating the same thing and it's been going on for years and decades and centuries, then no one's tempted to eat pork. And so the laws of uncleanness kind of, you just, you learn them. It just gets in you. It's, you know, you're, you're born into it um, and it, it doesn't become a huge burden. So a lot of the law here is not a burden because it's, it's detailed burden for them because it's so detailed or because it's so weird. Um, we just need to recognize that they lived in a different world. That's not our world anymore, but let's just at least recognize that God wasn't being harsh and cruel and putting them under this, this uh, huge burdensome system. This was designed to teach them, to mature them, to give them life and peace in their uh, community. Another thing I found helpful in Jordan's work about the law is his focus upon the way that the ceremonial law was the primary aspect of the law that brought to light the realities of sin and redemption. Um, whereas often when people talk about the law, they're thinking about the moral law as that which you're supposed to reflect upon, and that reveals your inability to keep it, etc. It reveals sin within. Yet when you look at the ceremonial, much less is said about the ceremonial law, rather when people are reading through Romans, they're focusing upon the moral law as that which reveals sin. But yet what reveals sin and gathers it together is very much the sacrificial aspects of the law. And it's through the revelation of the reality of the flesh. For instance, all these ways in which the operations of the flesh, fundamental in bringing forth children in, um, in the exposure of the flesh beneath the skin and leprosy in all these different forms of um, practices associated with cleanness and the dealing with the flesh that exposes a principle that is far more um, anthropologically weighty within the old testament and the new than um, the concept of just interior um, examination about our inability to keep the moral 
commandments. There is something there, but the law has this ceremonial aspect that brings sin to light that can often be ignored by New Testament commentators who are very much reading the text for a Gentile audience that have not had that experience. I want to throw a wrench into uh, the discussion a little bit. Um, Jeff said in his initial response to my comments that, uh, and, and Jim says this, one of the one of the things that is a mis- misconception is that the law was impossible to keep. And I, I agree with the point that Jeff made. I agree with Jim. There are places in the New Testament where people are described as being righteous according to the law, which meant didn't mean, as we've already said, it didn't mean that they kept the moral law perfectly without without exception, but rather that they kept they generally kept the moral law and when they failed, then they 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 did the proper procedures to be be reconciled to God. The 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 wrench I want to throw in is is the is uh, uh some of Paul's descriptions of the law, and particularly I'm thinking of the latter part of Romans seven, where there's a couple things going on in that passage, I think, that uh kind of two sides of the coin in, in Paul's argument. One of them is a vindication of the law. He says at a number of points in that passage, uh, he remarks on the goodness of the law. It's holy, righteous, and good. It's uh, it's a spiritual law. So it's a vindication on the law on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's an in, it's a description. However, you take the the I, the individual who's speaking in Romans seven, if that's Paul, if that's Paul as a representative of Israel, it's describing the effect that the law has on people who are, I think the point is that on people who are in the flesh. So you have the spiritual law that is given to a people who are in Adam, as it were, are still in the flesh. And in that situation, the law has a, has a uh, well, as Paul says, I received the law and I died. He describes the I in that passage becomes divided between his inner approval of the law and his delight in the law and his outer inability to keep what the law demands. And then the climax of that comes at the beginning of chapter eight, where Paul says, uh, we've now been set free from the law of sin and death, and we are now in the spirit. The law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And therefore, by the spirit, we keep the righteous requirement of the law. The righteous requirement of the law, what the law always demanded, is kept by those who walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. So there, there does seem to be a some indication that the law was... Um, it's not really the problem of the law. It's it's the problem of Israel. Israel is not at, in its childhood, in its fleshly state. Israel is not capable of receiving the law in a way that doesn't uh, divide and kill. Any thoughts on how to reconcile that with what we were talking about earlier? Well, a question for you. I think I hear you saying that this was what happens in the old world. Uh, before Christ and the giving of the Spirit, that the law, in all of its in all of its um, dimensions, uh, ministered death, so that we get to the point where Israel, where the law has done its work so well, that Israel basically is dead, dead in the water when Jesus comes, and so. Everything has to be made new. Jesus has to die and rise again so right. that there can be a new world and the spirit can be given. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that can be true. And also it can be true that moral requirements for Israelites could still be kept in some sense. And moral requirements for us 
I think we can say can be kept because we have the spirit. I mean, we can, the, the, the moral requirements of God today doesn't deliver the same kind of death that it did to people in the flesh before the coming of the new world. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's the way I would uh, reconcile them. And I, I agree with you. That's, that was a point I was making that I don't think the issue of whether the eye is regenerate or unregenerate is is germane to the passage at all. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I think he's talking about the difference between being in the flesh and being in the spirit, which is not regenerate, unregenerate. It's old and new. So uh, what he's describing as a the, the deadly effects of the law, he's talking about what happened in the old world when uh, Israel was still in Adam and not yet in the new Adam. I think the sense of this being about the people, not every single individual, the universal individual experience of the law. As we go through the Psalms, for instance, we find the psalmist rejoicing in the law of God and seeing it as good, like honeycomb and something to meditate upon and find life within the person who meditates and spends his life exploring and um, chewing over the law is like someone who's a tree planted by streams of water. This is seen as a life-giving state. And so you get that throughout the Psalms. You get that at many points within the Old Testament. And yet the nation's relationship with the law is fundamentally tragic um, because the law, which was intended to give them life, ended up bringing them into death. Now, I don't think that Paul's point is primarily about the universal experience of the individual with the law. It's about the experience of Israel with the law. And that was of the type that's described. I think the same thing uh, helps us to explain a lot of passages in Romans and how they might fit with some of these very positive statements about the law that we find within the Old Testament. Um, The sorts of statements about pervasive sin and the ways that um, the sin of the people are described, that the sin of the people is described in some of these um, long lists in places like Romans 3 of the corruption of the people. I think that makes a lot more sense if we're not thinking about primarily individuals, but we're thinking about the tendency of the people. And when we read um, passages like Hebrews 8, the problem is with the people, not with the law. And so the people need to be dealt with, and that's dealt with within the new covenant. And so that tragic experience of the law, um, I don't think should be as individualized as we can tend to. Um, There is an individual experience of that, um, the revelation of sin within the heart, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the experience of the law more generally has to be the tragic one that it was for Israel as a nation. Yeah, that's very helpful. I agree with that. Yeah, that's a helpful clarification. I like that. We both like it, so it must be true. The testimony of two witnesses. Yes, actually three, because Alistair, Alistair stated it to begin with. Uh, I, I want to highlight a couple other things. We've been talking mainly about what Jim talks, says about the law in this, pa- in this chapter, but uh, there are a couple other things that I think are uh, worth highlighting. Um, one of them is a, is a fairly, as far as I know, fairly unique um, idea about um, the way that worship operated in uh, in Mosaic Israel. Once Israel entered the land, established the tabernacle was established in Shiloh. Uh, Jim argues that there were synagogue-like institutions all over the land 
uh, pastored, led by Levites. We know that Levites were scattered all over the land. They were in the cities. They were certain Levitical cities. Um, uh, he, uh, Jim is probably drawing on some obscure 19th century writer for this conclusion, but the idea that the idea that synagogue worship uh, existed from the very beginning of Israel's entry into the land is not what you hear from most Old Testament scholars, but uh, it seems right because the Leviticus 23 requires that there be a holy convocation on every Sabbath. That can't, that can't possibly mean that everybody's traveling to Shiloh every Sabbath because that would be that would be prohibitive, impractical. They spend their whole week either traveling to or from the the sanctuary. So there must be some way that they can have a holy convocation other than at the sanctuary. The obvious uh, way to do that is to have local assemblies without sacrifice. It would not be sacrificial worship, but uh, you'd have local assemblies that would be something like synagogue worship with uh, worship of of word and prayer and perhaps song. So I think that, that's an that was that's an interesting insight and makes just much more sense of Israel's entry into the land and how they how things operated there. The other thing that we could talk about at great length that Jim highlights is the symbolic polity of the tabernacle and the various dimensions of what the tabernacle means. He's uh, drawing this partly from the earlier sections of the book where he's talked about the Garden of Eden, and now the tabernacle is established as a kind of reconstituted architectural Garden of Eden. Aaron is placed in the garden as uh, a new Adamic figure uh, so this is an advance in in uh, humanity's restoration to the garden. Not everybody is allowed to go into the garden sanctuary. Only Aaron and his sons, only Aaron and the priests are allowed to go in. Uh, but there is a uh, a move toward the ultimate restoration of access to the presence of God in the garden. That's one one aspect of the institution of the tabernacle. But he he talks about much more, and that's a that's really a that's a crucial part of what he does in this chapter, and it becomes a crucial part of what he's talking about in uh, later chapters, too, because he's going to be talking about the transformation of the tabernacle as it moves into the temple and then into Ezekiel's visionary temple and the second temple and into the, the new covenant temple of the church. This is also one of those insights that can transform the way you understand tabernacle and temple and also the way we appropriate for ourselves, the meaning of of uh, these institutions, whether it's um, fulfilled in Christ or in the church, I think it's helpful just to outline the five aspects that Jim draws that the tabernacle is a house for God. That's obvious because once they finish the tabernacle in Exodus 40, then the Lord moves in, the glory cloud fills the place. But also it is a cosmic model it symbolized heaven and earth. And Jim goes into that uh, in, in, in some detail here, and it's worth looking into that. And then the tabernacle, holy mountain. Um, so it's a reproduction of Mount Sinai and the configuration of Mount Sinai. And I'm not sure if it's in here or not, but um, in Jim 2.0, he has talked about how the tabernacle and the altar really are kind of allegorical recapitulations of the founding event on Mount Sinai. So at the end of Exodus, um, is it Exodus 20? I think when the, the, yeah, Exodus 20 is when the Lord appears on the mountain and gives the law and Moses goes up and all that. And then, then you have the altar that is given the directions for the altar of uncut stones 
And so the altar becomes a mountain. And on top of the mountain is a fiery presence, a smoky, fiery presence. And up the altar goes the animal, the ox or the, or whatever it is. And Jim noted here that that ascension of the animal is really an allegory of Moses going up on the mountain. So just as Moses went up into the presence of God, so the animal goes up in the presence of God. Um, now, there are more dimensions to that. But I think that's fascinating, and it also relates to then to the tabernacle, because when the high priest or the priests go up, well, when the people come at the foot of the mountain, the people come in the forecourt of the tabernacle, and then the priests go into the holy place, like uh, the elders of Israel did and Aaron and his sons, and then the high priest goes up into the holy of holies, the most holy place. Well, that's like Moses. And so you have this allegorical reenactment of Mount Sinai in the tabernacle and in the altar. Um, it's those kinds of connections. Once you see them, you're like, okay, wow, um, that makes that makes sense to me. And now I can think about how that might apply to Jesus um, ascending into the clouds, into the glory cloud, and and uh, how that relates to our worship and our life of sacrificial service. Another thing I've found very helpful in thinking through the significance of the tabernacle within the sort of framework that Jim provides is just recognizing the way in which in chapters 30, 25 to 31 of Exodus, we have two cycles of the creation pattern. So you begin with things formless and void and the need for things to be um, formed. So you have just the materials gathered together and then corresponding with the light being formed, you have the golden items created, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the table of showbread, and the golden lampstand. And then you have day two, the firmament that's established. That's the tabernacle structure with the veils and the screens and then day three, the earth and sea are created. It's the tabernacle courtyard established with the bronze altar within it. And then you have the lights placed in the firmament on day four, and you have oil for the lamps on um, in the corresponding place in the construction of the tabernacle. Um, and as you go through, you can see every single day has its corresponding part of the cycle of the construction of the tabernacle. And then it goes through that cycle again um, in a shorter span so you have 25 to 29 first cycle and then the second cycle is 30 to 31 and it's marked out by key expressions everything according to the pattern for the first three stages and then um in things enjoying throughout your generations in the second three and so it seems that um just the very literary structure alerts us to the fact that this is a world model this is a cosmic house. And um, as Jeff noted as well, it is related to the pattern of Sinai. It's a movable mountain. And so that founding event of Sinai is something that they carry with them into the land and it becomes a continuing pattern of their life. Likewise, the pattern that's given on the mountain is the pattern of creation itself. This is the seed of a new creation. And so as the nation is formed around that, particularly in Leviticus, the patterns of the life of the tabernacle is the tent of meeting. 
all the worship and the sacrifices, and then later the camp being ordered around that in numbers, and then bringing that into the land in Deuteronomy on, um, all of this is a way of Israel's life being formed around this cosmic model and this continuation of the reality of Sinai. Right. And and one of the things he's pointing out, too, is the, the correlations and analogies between the house and the people. And Alice, you mentioned the gathering of the people around the tabernacle. So there's a, there's a kind of a literal connection between the tabernacle as the center of the life of the people. That's true literally in the wilderness. But then uh, that the various symbolisms that uh, the crossover symbolism between the people and the and the tabernacle run throughout the Old Testament. So one of the things that Jim points out at various places is the connection between the furnishings of the tabernacle, furniture of the tabernacle, and the people who are serving God. So when I mean the kind of the classic case where you see this analogy is at the time of the exile when it's not only the people that are carried off into exile, but also the furnishings of the temple that are carried off into exile. And those two things are parallel. And so part of what that means is that Israel was to learn what it meant to be the people of God, the holy nation, the the royal priesthood, by observing and meditating on what was happening in the tabernacle. Because although they were not physically present in their own bodies in the tabernacle, they were present representatively in the priest. They're present representatively in the furnishings of the tabernacle, as Jeff has been describing. They're the ones who are going up onto the mountain, as it were, through the mediation of sacrificial animals. So all these things are happening to them, and it's a way of meditating on their own status and their own calling before God. And recognizing that correlation between people and house in the Old Testament, I think, makes it it makes a, a much stronger continuity with what Paul is doing when he talks about, or Peter, what, what both are talk, uh, talking about when they talk about the body as uh, a an edifice, when Peter talks about a living house of living stones, a temple of living stones, that's not a, that's not a new thing. There's something, there is something new in the new covenant because you have the f- complete fusion of house and people, but that connection between house and people is already there in the Old Testament, which then uh, one final thought on this thread is, uh, which also means, to return to a point I made earlier, that the ceremonial law that governs the tabernacle, the, the description of the furnishings of the tabernacle, the descriptions of the of the approach through sacrifice, the description of the laws of impurity and the, the rites of cleansing, given the fact that these are already symbolic of the people and they're all, there's already this correlation, that means the those ceremonial laws continue, continue to be of use and uh, continue to give us wisdom in understanding how we are to approach God, what it means for us to be a holy people. If we want to know what it means for us to be a holy house, a living, uh, made of living stones, then the obvious place to go is to look at the tabernacle texts. We have to make a transfer. We have to make it kind of imaginative transfer to think about how these tabernacle texts, which are describing physical objects, the inanimate objects, how those are describing us but that's the that's the logic that's already there, and so the the ceremonial law again becomes something rich and and beneficial and life giving uh, in the new covenant. It's not something we set aside because Christ fulfilled it. Rather, because Christ fulfilled it, it's also being fulfilled in us in these new covenant forms. We should not forget the radical symbolic ritual discontinuities between the world 
of the law, the mosaic world and our world, the, the symbolic pressure, if you will, in that world was exclusion, boundaries, barriers. An animal could go up, but men couldn't. You had to watch the animal ascend on that altar. You had to watch the priest go into the tabernacle. And then the high priest, well, you didn't even see that, but you, you could imagine him going in. But you were excluded in, in many ways. There were these zones of holiness. I mean, I try to help people understand this um, in my congregation. When you're talking about holiness, when you're talking about uncleanness, you, you should think spatially, first of all, because this is what was set up in the tabernacle and the temple is that holiness you're either near to God and you can be very near to him in the most holy place, nearer in the holy place, a little nearer in the uh, courtyard. And then there's a holy land and then there's everything else outside. So as you approach the most holy place where Yahweh is enthroned, get closer and closer. And there are more and more levels of cleanness required of you and, or, or other kinds of requirements. And, I think this is important for people to recognize that uncleanness in the, in the Bible is not about health. Uh, it's not about uh, um, a disease per se. It's, it's very symbolic. And it reminds everybody that because of our sin, we're cut off. Now, all of that changes because Jesus, when he dies, the, the curtain is rent, remember, in the temple and the way is open. And so in our worship, we don't have any degrees of holiness, or we shouldn't. Some churches, unfortunately, do. But heaven is open to us because Jesus has ascended, the man, Jesus, not an animal. Uh, and now we have, we have access. We have sanctuary access. That's what it means to be a saint. The only person who really had sanctuary access once, once a year was the high priest in, in the world of Moses. But now Jesus is there continually, and we're in him, we're united to him, and we have sanctuary access. And so in our rituals, we don't emphasize these boundaries or barriers or degrees of nearness to God. In fact, we emphasize the fact that we, we're in God's presence on the Lord's Day as his people. Uh, we're the living stones were the tab were the uh, the temple of god uh so that that's i think that's helpful for people to see because they'll, they'll then they'll, they'll recognize you know we can talk about continuities between moral law and ceremonial law and how we learn from it but there's there are these real discontinuities as well that help us understand the privilege and the grace we've received through jesus in the new world yeah jeff i agree with i agree with all of that uh i would uh Offer one qualification, I guess. I, I agree with the uh, the point that there there are these exclusions. That's obvious in the way the tabernacle is constructed. You have to be a person of a certain stature of holiness in order to draw near. But I, I think that can be mis misunderstood as misunderstood in this way. It, it, uh, if if we think of it as God coming near to be with His people, uh, and then barricading His house so that nobody can get in, we don't want to give that impression. Rather, I think what's happening is that God comes near to his people. He sets up his house, and his house is a house of lavish hospitality and generosity. It's uh, Deuteronomy 12 talks about the place of the sanctuary is the place where you eat, drink, and rejoice in the presence of God, and we show charity to the 
to the orphan and the widow and the Levite who is in your gates and the stranger is in your gates. So the, the tabernacle is set up as a place of hospitality and festivity, but under the conditions of the old covenant, that festivity can be done safely only if people are kept at a distance. Uh, and so it's it's not as if God is trying to keep people away. It's He's keeping people away and opening up his houses. He's opening up his, his house as much as he can, given given the conditions of the old covenant Israel. Uh, those exclusions are there, but they're 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 for the purpose of hospitality. And then the radical change, as you said, Jeff, is that you have this uh, a complete opening. We're in the inner sanctuary. We're no longer at the courtyard. There's no barrier between us and the the word and the bread and and the minister of God. There's no there's no screens that keep us away. We're directly in the presence of God. But it's it's basically the same house. It's the, still a house of hospitality that God is opening up for us. And and I think when we see that when we see that, then we can start looking at the entirety of the entirety of the ceremonial law, which includes all of these exclusions. But we can see it as an aspect and a dimension of God's love and care and generosity to His people, and that I think helps us to see the tabernacle perhaps through through new eyes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.